0: welcome to the journey to midwifery podcast i'm your host amber wilson a doctor nurse midwife turned podcast host it is our job and passion as midwives to listen to everyone else's story their journey their birth story now it's our turn to share so here i am asking these midwives what's your story Join me each episode to hear the journey, the passion, and the mission of midwives today. All right, we are back for another episode of Journey to Midwifery podcast to um, hear Takiyah's story, who is a certified nurse midwife. So, Takia, thank you for coming on with me today, and let's get started on your story. Tell us who you are.
1: Thank you for having me. My name is Takiya and I am a certified nurse midwife. I've been a midwife for 17 years. Um, prior to that, I was a nurse, um, working about three to four years um, before getting certified as a midwife. I um, have a, 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 I would like to think maybe a unique journey, but perhaps maybe not as unique as I may think, um, in that maybe people who identify like I have, or like I do, um, might have similar stories. Um, I started out in uh, Brooklyn, New York, born and raised, and I was born as the eldest into my family, and my family um, consisted of my dad and my mother and my two sisters, and uh, my parents were high school educated and um, did certifications uh, to uh, do work. My mother was certified doing computer work, and my dad was certified in construction home business. uh, uh, I'm sorry, um, construction and um, uh, carpentry. Um, As it was in the 70s and 80s in Brooklyn, New York, people were poor, didn't have many resources and money. um, And so that was the environment that I lived in. Um, We didn't own a house. We basically, my dad worked and he was the breadwinner um, and my mother was a homemaker. Um, As life continued, um, you know, my father uh, came from a home life that was really um, considered pretty typical in New York City area where um, his family struggled financially. Um, There was drug and alcohol abuse. There was drug and alcohol abuse in my home as well. Um, and subsequently, as things um, ensued and his life went on, um, that drug and alcohol addiction from my father um, consumed him. And um, he became then completely drug addicted, where he could not be uh, allowed to stay at home. And now my mother had to assume the role of um, breadwinner and caretaker for, uh, for her three daughters. Um, as time went on, um, that me- meant for us that things, money wasn't as good in our home. We didn't have much of it. My mother had to work two and three jobs to keep us um, clothed with a roof over our heads um, and um, schools and all of those things. So then I had to become the mother in the home. Um, Being the mother in the home to my two younger sisters was definitely something I did not want to do, but I had to do in order to support and help my mother. As time went on, I um, noticed that um, in order to get away from the responsibilities of the home and all of the things that were going on with my parents, um, I started to really get into schoolwork. And be- before my dad became um, addicted to the drugs and alcohol, he was really, really um, an avid learner and he loved spending time with me as, a, as his daughter uh, with school and he loved math and I love math and he loves science and I love science, science and I loved it even more because I loved doing it with him. Um, as, as what, what happened was, you know, as I started to notice that these things were going on in my home and it was something I could do a change. I, I started to dive more into school. I also remember as a child playing with my dolls and I used to breastfeed my dolls, even though no one in my home breastfed. I did not see my mother breastfeed my younger sister. Um, formula was something that we did in our home. And so I didn't know if I you know, emulated that because of what I saw on TV, perhaps, or, you know, um, I've never to this day, I don't really understand how I came to know that, but I knew it was something in me that loved children and loved women and loved, you know, that connection. And so I decided that I wanted to either be a pediatrician, or I wanted to be um, an OBGYN or a doctor that delivered babies. And because my family, we didn't have anyone who was college- educated in my immediate family, it, and, and also because I really focused on schoolwork as my getaway from all of the, the issues of, of my home life, I uh, really focused in on schoolwork and I became this little nerd and I loved it. It was, I, I was thriving in doing schoolwork. I used to ask for extra homework and spend time after school with the teachers and things like that. And so um, it was something that helped me escape my reality. And um, teachers at the time saw um, something in me, my, my uh, guidance counselor and my math teacher when I was in junior high school saw that drive in me. And at the time when I was in um, a school in New York City in Brooklyn, New York, um, they had state and local testing, uh, citywide testing for students uh, to determine their, you know, their excellence. And they called them regents exams. And at the time in the, in the early 80s, there's, you know, the, the school districts, in New York City were very poorly run, especially in the inner cities. Um, Manhattan, uh, Manhattan was not one of those areas. They actually excelled because more Caucasian students and students of Asian descent went to those schools. But in the, the um, other neighborhoods in Brooklyn and, and, and Queens and in um, Bronx, students were not excelling in those schools. Um, however, because of what was, I guess, instilled in me the fact that that was my outlet, I was one of those students that was getting these higher grades on the Regents exams, and I was recognized within the city, um, myself and some other students. And so because they saw that this was seen in me, my guidance counselor um, started to look for programs for me that would help me excel moving forward because our access to college um, as city, uh, in the city school district, and also the, number, the rate of college uh, or high school graduates, number one, and then students that went further to uh, college were very poor, those, those rates were really poor. And so he um, looked into a program called A Better Chance, ABC. And this program took um, students from the inner city and they placed those students in suburban schools or boarding schools to attend uh, high school where they would have a better opportunity or chance at college. Um, So I had to take um, a a standardized test. I went to the the schools uh, to interview. I wrote, uh, uh, filled out an application, wrote essays. And then those particular schools or programs that were interested in me um, invited me to go down and and, uh, visit the school. So that led me to a school in in, uh, Wallingford, Pennsylvania Um, And I had never really ventured outside of New York City other than spending summers in Bermuda with my family, my mother's side of the family. So I had really never um, gone outside of the city. And so this was my first exposure to people that did not look like me. And it was definitely a culture shock. I was 14 years old and I was in a boarding school. My home life was still dysfunctional. My father wasn't in the home. At this point, he was in a rehab center. um, And my mother was trying to hold it all together and take care of kids, um, three kids by herself. Um, And so to me, it was an escape. But to my mother, it was a loss. And so we struggled with that a little bit. Um, Finally, um, when I get into the school, I'm like, oh, my gosh, there's so many white people here. Like, there's so many people I don't know. I don't understand these people. They're looking at me, you know, uh, strange because I'm maybe a 2%, you know, population of the whole entire school. Um, Then I'm culturally different in the fact that I'm not, I wasn't raised as a black child in a suburb. I was raised as a black child in the city. So what I know to be normal to me is not normal to me now. So it was a lot of change for a 14 year old in a short period of time. Um, I still, however, you know, was able to excel and graduated. And from there um, went to Syracuse University um, and when I was writing my um, application and applying to schools, I still had in mind that I wanted to be an OBGYN or a doctor because it was impressed upon me that I had to be someone bigger than, you know, that. Like I had to be a, a, someone who had um, respect and um, I had to strive to be the best because no one in my community, no one in my family had, had, had achieved that. And so um, it was. I was being pushed. You got to be a doctor. You got to be a doctor. You got to be a doctor. So I applied to school, and I wrote an essay, and I talked about how um, I wanted to be a helper of people. I wanted to be compassionate. I wanted to care for people who needed care. And when I applied to Syracuse University, it, I guess it went into um, you know sort of like a, a large um, database, and um, my application was accepted. But it was also, it was accepted by the pre-med program, and it was also accepted by the nursing program. When I went to visit that school, I visited both programs. And when I got there, I quickly realized that my my heart didn't line up with the pre-med, you know, or science-y thing, even though I love science. It lined up more with nursing and in the in the sense that I could be at the patient's bedside and I can be, I can look at them in their total person, you know, physically, emotionally, spiritually. I can look at that person in the way that I was feeling when I was a young girl, that someone would look at me. And so I um, went to nursing school at Syracuse University. My first year, my dad passed away from drug addicted um, uh, consequences. He lost his life. And so that first year when I was in school, I was struggling because I had lost my father. And I was in this new environment, another new environment, and I didn't know what was, what was going to be the outcome for my family. Because at that point, my father had come back, was completely drug-free, and had resumed his rightful place as the father of our family. And so to lose him after he cleaned up was another devastation to us. Um, so later, as time went on, I, you know, as this young girl who had this weird dynamic going on with her father, didn't really understand what it meant to be a young woman, didn't really have that validity because unfortunately my mother had to worry about keeping us together. And so even though she poured into me as a woman and I saw her example, she had to sort of prioritize how she cared for us and how she did things because she had a lot on her shoulders. And so I was looking for love in a lot of the wrong places and ended up having getting pregnant in college which was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. So while I'm in nursing school, I'm pregnant and I am in my, the beginning of my junior year. Um, and I find out that I'm having this baby or actually was the end of my junior year, I find out I'm having this baby and everybody in my family is saying, do one or two things, either get an abortion or you got to leave school. And I didn't want to do either And I didn't want to get an abortion because I had just lost my father and I didn't think I could handle two losses. And I didn't want to not finish school because I knew if I stopped, I might not go back. And I knew that I needed even more so now to finish than I ever did before. So in that time, I was working at um, college as um, a work study program, right, to get some, some finances because, again, I needed to supplement um, my, my income or what I was doing in school because my mother could not afford to pay for everything. So I needed to have a job while I was in school. And I, um, worked two, two work study jobs, one at the library, um, and then one at the Dean's office. And I was the secretary for, uh, the Dean of Student Affairs. Her and I became really, really close and I confided in her and let her know I was pregnant. And then I told her what I needed. And she, she completely supported me. I asked her if I could take extra credits during the semester that I was pregnant so that when my child was born, I can continue to take credits, but they would be like silly classes like self-defense or, you know, simple classes that didn't really require my thought or my effort in terms of schoolwork. It just required my presence. And she thought, you know, she knew it was going to be hard, but she was going to advocate for me with her um, peers and colleagues. And so she took my case to um, the dean of schools, and they approved to allow me to take. I think I took somewhere around 22 or 23 credits, which was literally unheard of. And I busted my butt the year or the, the semester um, that that semester, which was the second semester. Um, so August to December, and I worked really hard, and I was. Big belly, pregnant, walking around campus. Um, Then, of course, my son was due during the week of finals. (laughs) So I'm like, how many many hurdles do I have to jump over to, you know, um, to get through this thing called life? So now I have this child that's growing in me. And before I get to that, I'll just say that, you know, I'm in also, which was another blessing, I'm in this class that is maternal child nursing. How... Um, divine is it that I could be in a class right at the same time that I'm growing life that teaches me about the growth of life so it was that class became my childbirth education class because at that time I had to really figure out what was more what what information could I retain I, I I went to Lamont's classes but I I don't remember I didn't remember anything from it and and it was some just mostly me being there You know, so my textbook became my childbirth education class. As I was growing life, I was learning about life. Also during that time in that class, there was a couple of pivotal things that happened. The first one was there was um, a career day where a a midwife, an advanced practice nurse, came to talk to our class. And in that time that she was speaking to our class, she was talking about, like, she talked about her profession with such great joy. And, And she also described, you know, her autonomy and how she was able to, be uh, autonomy in, uh, autonomous in practice where she could you know practice independently of a physician. She could you know care for her patients in the way that she knew best. and that intrigued me. Then uh, the other piece that was interesting was um, that she talked about you know the autonomy that a patient has under her care and that was another thing that like sealed the deal and was like the icing on the cake. That, you know, made me say, wow, I got to tuck that in the back of my mind. That might be something that I want to do. But I was still unsure about so many things because I had this baby growing inside of me and I didn't have any resources on how to take care of this child while I was also a dependent myself. So uh, I finished clinicals, did my courses, things like that. And finals come up and guess who goes into labor during finals? So I I knew that my due date was around the finals time. And so I then again went to all of my professors and I said, I obviously, I'm pregnant. It's pretty easy to see. Is there any way that I can work out something where I can take my finals with a newborn if I happen to go into labor? If I happen to miss my my class because I'm in labor or my, my finals because I'm in labor, can I have a makeup day? You know, and I went through each class and petitioned my case to each professor and every professor except for one made me, um, told me that it was okay. And one professor made me take an incomplete and finish it up on the next semester when I came back. But every professor said it was okay to bring my newborn to my class so that I could take the, the, uh, the exam. And all they asked was that if my newborn was disruptive or crying, that I had someone there. Um, they also said, would I be OK that my person be checked to make sure that I'm not cheating and so on and so forth. But I told them that that was fine. And so here I am nursing my newborn while I'm taking finals. Graduated on time. Everything was well. And then I started to practice as a nurse. But then as a, a couple years into nursing. Um, and if I really want to tell the whole story, I need to not skip this part. Now I am a new mother had my son a beautiful birth. And let me actually, let me go back to the birth because that's the whole reason why I became a midwife. I go into labor. I wake up with contractions at like two o'clock in the morning. I called in the doctor, like I was told. And I, you know, the doctor says, oh, it sounds like you're in early labor. Try to see if you can sleep and go back to sleep. I did that. And now I'm, I'm living in a dorm by myself. Now, this dorm, again, another another request was, can I have uh, permission to live on the graduate campus, right? The graduate dormitory section where all the graduate students live with their families. As an undergrad, can I have permission to do that? And I was able to get that as well, pleading my case. So I'm living in a, a, an apartment style dorm and I go into labor and I call some of my girlfriends to drive me over to the hospital. I get to the hospital, I'm contracting And they check me on three centimeters and they take me from the triage area to the labor and delivery ward. And I get there and I see my instructor, the person who's been teaching me about labor and delivery and pre and maternal child care as my nursing instructor in the hospital. I had no idea that she worked at this hospital and she was there. She took me as her patient and it was, again, another divine inter- interaction or encounter. She took me as her patient. She put me in a jacuzzi room in a whirlpool. Now, this, is in ni- this was 1997. So water birth, things like that were really not that um, prevalent. She had me labor in the water. I was vir- virtually unmonitored. She came in and she listened um, intermittently every now and again. She didn't bother me. She didn't tell me anything that I had to do. She just let me do my thing in the water. When she heard my voice change and that I sounded like I might be pushy, she helped me out of the jacuzzi. She walked me to my, to my um, bed in the room. She called the doctor or what have you. And two pushes later, I had my son. Completely unmedicated 20-year-old who knows nothing, who's just trying her best to make it through. That was how I was cared for. And, might I add, by a woman who did not look like me. When um, I had my baby, I went to, you know, to start working. Things were rough, you know, starting out with a newborn and a child, and you're you're only 21 or 22 yourself, and you're trying to figure out your life. Um, I, was, I went to go sit for my NCLEX, and I failed it the first time. And I thought to myself, oh, my gosh, I went to school. I did all this. Everybody's counting on me. How can I fail? And... I studied some more, I studied some more, I got stronger, got, you know, studied harder and I failed again. And now here's where my, everything that I thought I was started to crumble. Every, every thought that I had about myself started to waver. Every strong sense of, of who I was started to shake and crumble. And I realized, you know what? Uh, I got to do this. I have no choice. When you are faced with adversity and when you are the leader of your family and when you are the hope of your family, you have no choice but to succeed. So everything was on my shoulders and I had to just buckle down and do it. I didn't have the, the, the luxury of saying I'm going to change my course of action here and be something else. I knew without a doubt, equivocally, that that was who I was supposed to be. I needed to be a nurse. So I moved home had my mom take care of my, my mom and my sisters helped me take care of my son. And I, I taught myself test taking skills because I realized it wasn't the content that I didn't know. I knew the content. It was that I was getting tripped up by all those questions, those ways that they try to trick you. I was getting tripped up. So I, I learned how to take the test. I passed it. And I basically walked out of the the test taking exams and said, you guys managed to so give me my license right now. Cause I know without a doubt I passed. That was how confident I was in my, myself and I was, it restored me that, you know, days, weeks later, I was able to have my license. I practiced for a number of years and quickly realized I was getting that sort of that small still voice in the back of my head and in my heart that was saying, this is not it. You you got more work to do. Like this is not the end. Nursing is not your your final destination. I went further and it, then it started hitting me, all those, the stories of that lady that was speaking in my class that was just talking with such joy about her profession. I wanted that. And then I started thinking and pondering and, and talking about and rehearsing my birth story and realized that that woman had given me a gift. She anticipated my needs as a patient and met those needs and I didn't have to voice anything. I didn't have to voice my needs. She met the need by just being there. And so I, I had this incredible sense that I had to pay it forward. I had to pay this forward and sh- give people what was given to me as that gift. And so I went back to midwifery school. I started school at, at NYU, New York University, and in 2003. And <laughs> you're probably thinking, oh, then kid's life should be like totally great and soaring from here. She's gone through a lot. No, there's more hurdles. So I ended up. Having this child with me, my wonderful son, my greatest accomplishment, my biggest gift, he's with me all the way. I'm going through um, nursing, I mean, midwifery school, and I'm working. The first semester, first trimester, you're allowed to, or semester, you're allowed to work. And so I'm working and going to school and taking classes, and we're living alone, him and I, and then my identity gets stolen. And back then, when your identity gets stolen, it's not like now where you could put a security lock and, and keep it moving and they fix everything. I had to hire a lawyer, I couldn't get student loans. So now I have to work even more to pay off my student loans because I don't stop, I can't afford to stop. So I keep pushing myself to go forward. And so I ended up now stressed completely out. I had to sit, I had to take my son and I had to let him move in with his dad's family in Pennsylvania. So that I can continue school and be successful because I, I looked at him and I looked at my situation and I said, in order for me to do well by him and in order for me to do well by my, to my, by myself, I have no choice but to continue and finish. Um, I've gone too far to turn back. And so he moved in with his grandparents and he was about three years old. And that was one of the hard, that was probably the hardest thing I've ever had to do would let my son move in with his grandparents while I finished school in a whole nother state. So, but that didn't change the fact that I was going to be there for every moment, every milestone, every transition that he made. And so the way that it worked was I gave up my apartment in Connecticut. I moved into my grandmother's house in Brooklyn. I had a car and my car was my new home. I traveled weekends and I stayed Friday through Sunday with my son. I went drove back to New York. I was in class in the evenings and I worked during I worked during the day and evening. So I used to work 7P to 7A during the day I went to school and then back at it again. I saw a midwife in New York City a few years ago who said to me, um, you know, she we weren't being reintroduced. And I said, you don't remember me. And she says, no, but keep talking. And I said, yeah, I was the, I said, you were my instructor when I was doing um, AP. And she was like, Okay. She's like, I keep talking. And I was like, you remember me? I was the one with the suitcase. And she said to me, you know what? Me and my colleague the other day were just talking about you that you work so hard. I used to literally travel with a suitcase and go from Connecticut. Cause I worked at Yale, New Haven hospital, 7 P P to 7 a as a nurse, get on the train, take the train to New York city, do my classes in the day and my car was parked in New York City. I would roll that same suitcase onto the subway and go and travel to see my son. There were many days that I had to wash up in McDonald's bathrooms. There were many days that I had to make myself look presentable because I, when, I, when I saw my son, I did not want him to see me weary. I did not want him to see me tired. I did not want him to see me failing or feeling any kind of way. I wanted him to know that he, his mommy was happy, he was happy, and this was another fun visit. So I had to do whatever it took despite and I worked full-time and did it. So I did all of that, and I, and I go through this story not because I need any accolades or not because I need anyone to say, well, well done, to Kia. I go through this story, and I tell it the way that I tell it, one, because it's true, but two, because it is not just my story. But it's the story of a lot of people who look like me. We have to sometimes go through things a lot more difficult. Our path is a lot more windy, has more hills for us to climb in order to come to the same end, which is my degree and my license to practice midwifery. And so when I give, when I practice this kind of practice, when I practice with these patients, I'm giving them heart. I'm giving them that same trial and tribulation that I went through to get to where I'm at. And, and to me, it it has this meaning and this passion behind it that that you can't see, but you can feel that is very tangible, but it's also rewarding and enriching and and it helps to change people's lives and so when i'm out there i'm 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 trying to pay forward that same um love and concern and care that that nurse gave me without me having to ask i do it in the same way with 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 fervency and with strength and with resolve to leave legacy and let that legacy continue to be a rippling effect uh, for the community and for people you know, for years to come, even when I close my eyes and I'm done on this earth, that effect will still be in place. So I know that was long. And I know that was a a really, really long story, but it has, you know, I have to tell it that way because it makes sense. And it has more of um, more strength behind it. If I tell it and it's my truth.
0: So that is how I became a midwife. Well, you might not want to hear this, but you are an amazing, inspiring person. Thank you. I mean, just your story. It, I was like laughing on my silent end and, you know, getting <laughs> goosebumps. And, oh, I, I can't wait to share this. I think you should write a book. Um, it's so inspiring.
1: <laughs> really. Thank you. And,
0: you know, and I know that there are hurdles that we don't all experience. And hearing how you've overcome, I just... It, it's just inspiring. And I want to say in commenting on your nurse who took care of you in birth, something I always say is a woman will tell and remember her birth story all, all the way until her deathbed. So you have mm-hmm. to make this moment this time. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if she has one baby or 10 right. every time as special as you possibly can in that yeah, interaction. Absolutely. And thinking about how that person that took care of you has rippled into your life, which then rippled mm-hmm. into all of your patients' lives, mm-hmm. Right. Right. I mean, it gives me goosebumps. Um, (laughs) So you made it. You graduated. What what happened next? What's the next chapter in your life? What happened?
1: Yes. So when I graduated um, at the time that I graduated or was in my final stages of integration at my school, um, I had been, you know, like I said, I went to NYU and NYU was sort of in competition being a newer midwifery program with some of the programs that had been in in practice and in terms of education for a number of years prior. So I think I was the second graduating class of NYU. And it was, a, like I said, a very new program. Um, Columbia, um, SUNY Downstate, to, to name the other two programs, they had really a lot of competition for the clinical sites. Um, for the local hospitals. And so, when it came down to integration, it was a little tough for me to try to figure out where I wanted to have my integration at. And my you know, then I also had to think about the fact that integration is this full time you know work that a student is doing, and they really ask that you don't work, and that was something that was really uh, critical for me because uh, if I didn't work, I didn't have any money to take care of myself or my kid who I was still paying for while he was living in his grandparents' home. so um, I had to figure out a a better way of doing this. And so I went to my instructors and I said, listen, I have my child in Pennsylvania. I need to do my integration in Pennsylvania. So there I sent out a mass amount of letters um, petitioning for um, a student midwife to do integration in the uh, local practices and hospitals of that area where my son was living. And I got a, a, a response from a practice that actually was interested. And so um, I went and I interviewed with them and they took me on as a student um, midwife. Um, and so when I practiced there, you know, of course, my school didn't know this, but I had to work full time. So what I did was I worked um, as a travel nurse with a local travel travel nurse agency that only did um, uh Positions in the local area, so I would go to the local hospitals, um, nursing homes, anywhere that I could go, and they needed an RN, I was there. Um, because again, I had a child to take care of, and I had um, my education to partially pay for, and my just my living expenses. Um, and so um, from there, I, you know, graduated, and I'm like, where do I work? And it's it, again, another divine thing and a wonderful blessing was that this particular uh, employer or where I did my integration wanted to hire me. Because think about it, they had spent us so much time, um, you know, investing in me as a student, um, and I had learned their practice, their way of taking care of patients. Um, and they were a really, really busy practice. And the beautiful thing about how they set up, they had it set up, was that a patient could go in and decide whether she wanted to be taken care of by a physician or whether she wanted to be taken care of by a midwife, and the midwives were two solid, strong senior midwives, and I was the third as the younger of the crew. And then the doctors, there were three doctors, and so we would cross manage our patients when necessary, you know, based on time constraints or if we needed a consultation. Um, and we were first assistants to the doctors for all surgeries, and so that was when we when I learned that skill. And it was nice to be in that kind of practice because I was really protected and, and supported by people who had, um, you know, a plethora of, of skill set and knowledge. And so I really thrived in that environment and I learned. I thrived until a certain point, however, while my, my suturing skills got, you know, strong and I learned how to do third and fourth and I was a, you know, um, a, um, first assistant and I delivered twins and all these other things. I got all these skills in my first few years of practice. I quickly realized that women had no choice to govern their own bodies. And so now I'm a rule breaker. I'm I'm, me and the nurse are getting together and we're having a pact, close the door. Don't, don't, you know, don't let her, you know anybody know that we're in here squatting. She's four centimeters dilated. She's going to go on the toilet and sit and do some laboring there. You know, it was that kind of thing. And then I started to get this name as the rebel midwife. You know, the patients absolutely loved me and everybody wanted to deliver with me. But the doctors and everybody else was like, oh, that's Takiya's birth. She's in there breaking rules. And so I quickly realized it was time for me to say goodbye because they were looking for ways to try to, you know, not allow that to happen, to tighten the reins a little bit. So from there, I was really burned out. I, it was nothing for me to do ten births a week, just me. Um, and and that first uh, three years of me working there, I was probably somewhere um, around two hundred fifty to three hundred births in the first three years of my career. And it was an amazing journey because again, that's where I really got those solid skills. My hands got proficient and stronger. And but my heart and my my ached for who I was taking care of, and I found myself often apologizing for what I had to do because I had someone super, supervising my every move. Um, so from there, I, I, I resigned and I, um, I took a year off because I, I also realized that while I was on this path of becoming this midwife, I, I often didn't see my son because I was working these crazy hours. So I took a year off, I realized he, he was struggling in school and I homeschooled him for a whole year. Boy, was he not happy. He was like, you are the worst teacher in the whole wide world. Why do you have to be so tough? You're you're harder than all the rest of the teachers. And he hated it. I made him repeat uh, the whole third grade and do the fourth grade. And by the time he went back to public school at fifth grade, he was bored. You know, He's like, I know that already, I know that already. So now we had to deal with his mouth because his mouth was running too much and he needed to learn how to close his mouth and zip his mouth because he was a social butterfly. Um, so anyway, I, after a year of being home, homeschooling my son and realizing he hates me, (laughs) even though, you know, I did it to spend more time with him. Um, I realized that I needed to, um, I was getting the itch again. I needed to be a midwife. That was what I did. That's what, that was what I loved. And yeah, I took a year off, but it's time to go back. So I went back, um, part-time, but I also started teaching And I found out at that point that teaching was another love that I had. So I started teaching the maternal child uh, nursing program. I was over the maternal child nursing program at a local community college where students got their um, advanced practice nursing degree. So I was a professor over uh, maternal child nursing. So I was able to really work with a lot of other nurses to educate students in the clinical and the didactic environments. Um, And I really absolutely loved that journey. Um, and I worked as a midwife part time while I was doing that um, and here again, and, and I, let me pause and say that the mentality of of, a, of an African American woman is to a lot of the times work and work and work and succeed and push and I learned that from my mother. I learned you know that mentality from my mother that that says that you know if no one else is going to do it, you have to go and do it and while that 's a positive thing and that 's great, it also is something that um, really affects our um, our self-care, um, and our ability to take care of ourselves. My mother, for the majority of her year, years, up until she retired, has worked two to three jobs. I've not known my mother ever to have one job at one time. Um, and so I had that same mentality. I was working two jobs, you know, one po- full-time and one part-time. And, and I still wasn't able to accumulate a bunch of wealth. So that, that goes to show you that something's wrong with our system. Um, So anyway, I uh, realized quickly that that wasn't really uh, sustaining after a couple of years. And then I went back into midwifery full time. And at that point, I had joined um, in the same area. I moved a town over to Lancaster. I was in Harrisburg at the time and I moved to Lancaster. And um, in this particular uh, uh, employment, I worked for a birthing center. And this birthing center um, took care of predominantly Amish and Mennonite women. And they, um, you know, it's Amish country, majority of them delivered at home or in the birthing center. Um, and then we had other patients in the hospital. So that was the first time I had been introduced to an environment where, um, you have true exercise of choice be available to a woman, right? Where she could decide, I want to deliver in the hospital. I want to deliver at a birth center, or I want to deliver at home. And I could be taken care of by the, the people that I've chosen to be my care provider. I didn't have to switch care, I didn't have to transfer care because it was a different environment. So that was the first time I really was able to exercise my autonomy. But that was the first group of people that really taught me how to be a midwife. I had to learn how to watch the body and to to look at a woman's body in such a way to know whether she was fully dilated or just in her early stages of labor. I, I, I learned to sharpen my senses, my hearing, my sight, my hands, because these women, unequivocally decided medicine is not going to be a part of this journey. They decided we're not going to get a sonogram. No, we don't need that lab, you know, and, and, and we had to respect their wishes and continue to take care of them. It wasn't about my care plan. It wasn't about the plans that I had decided. It was about what they wanted and I had to learn how to walk alongside them. And so that was when I really truly saw what McGruffy was all about and what it should be all about. Not about this. This medicalized hybrid that we call midwifery, it is truly walking alongside women like we did it in the old days. And I, and this is when I learned my ex, my ex, my uh, practice as a midwife. Um, it, it just it expounded in terms of philosophy of care, in terms of skill set. I had to be sharp on my skills because I'm. 45 minutes away from a hospital when I'm on some of these Amish farms. There's no electricity in sight. I have to have on a headlamp as I'm going through the farm to try to find where the opening is to their house. I'm, I'm operating by kerosene light, you know, to deliver these babies, you know? And, and I haven't learned that if I had a breach, guess what, I'm not, who do I call? I don't call anybody, I deliver this breach. If I have twins, I deliver this twins. If I have a fetal demise, I, I deliver that fetal demise and I pronounce that baby and then call the coroner and come and get the baby. Like these were things that that had really, really showed me that autonomy and midwifery is a strong thing, but a thing that needed to be coveted and and re- and used re- wisely. Um. And so I had that opportunity to really, really enhance my skills, change my my philosophy, and be a midwife that was different from what I had been indoctrinated when I was in the school setting and in the hospital. Um. And so from there. Um, I fell in love with a with a with a, uh, a old a old friend, and I moved to New York. And at that point in time, I had been in education. I had, you know, been a nurse for a number of years. I had, you know, practiced from people's homes in the home birth and birth center. I'd done infusion nursing. I've done um, all kinds of nursing, emergency, cardiac care. As I mean, I've been everywhere. Um, and I had gone to Kenya, I forgot to tell you that when I was a nursing uh, professor, um, I created a course that took nursing students from um, their their schooling and we went to, to remote villages and other countries to provide care to, to people to learn how to think outside of the box to learn how to use our resources wisely and, and critically think so, so those were things that I had accomplished, and I thought, oh, I'm good. Now I can move. I could take what I've learned, and I can move into administration, and I can, I can lead a practice now. I've been a midwife for a number of years now. I can lead a practice of midwives, and I can write policy. And so I, I interviewed at a hospital in New York City, and I, I, I got there, and they were like, I interviewed for the for the direct, director position, and quickly realized that what I had signed up for was not what was happening. And then, you know, I started to feel that that angst again where I'm like, wow, I don't want to be practicing like I'm told that I want to practice like I'm instructed by my patient. I want my patient to be at the head of this and I follow her. I follow the family. I don't need anybody telling me what to do. I've been doing this for a little while now. I think I know what's, what's supposed to happen. And I realized that I was hired for something that I could not give. Um, and so I didn't last very long at that job. Um, and because it was very hostile and I, I cried every day, um, because I was being made to do things that did not speak to who I was at that point as a midwife. I I then left that job and I stayed in New York and I went to another birthing, a birthing center in New York and I got there and, you know, things started to look a little better and I started to come around again, like, okay, I'm feeling joy again and I, I can be impactful in my work. And that, uh, unfortunately, at the time, they were having some financial issues, and it just wasn't a real stable environment to work. And I, I, you know, at this point, I'm like, you know what? If I have another hurdle to jump over, this has got to be a rigged job. Like, this thing is rigged. This life that they- I'm living is rigged. Somebody is either having fun or I don't know. But I am so tired of jumping over these damn hurdles. I need some some level ground here. I need some even playing field. So, I I was talking to a few of the the birth assistants in there, and they happened to also double as doulas. And this was the first time I had been introduced to the world of doulas. I'm like, what's a doula? Like, I've heard labor coaches. But where I came from, we didn't need doulas because the nurses didn't have a lot of patients they were responsible for. So the nurses labor sat and the nurses encouraged. And the midwives did the same thing as well. So I didn't know what this doula thing was. When I got to New York City, I quickly realized doulas were absolutely necessary because these hospitals out here were like birthing factories. No one really had the time to spend with patients. And so um, these doulas encouraged me, oh my gosh, Takir, you, you have it, like you have all the experience. Why are you working for people? And I'm like, you know what, you're right. Why am I working for people? And so that was the birth of my, my private practice, my private home birth practice, um, Sakina Midwifery Service. And I started that in 2014, and I worked at the birthing center while I built the practice for a year, and after a year, it was self-sustaining in terms of finances, and I was able to go into that full-time. I was full-time since 2015, and I've been working it up until this last uh, May. My last baby was born um, the last week of May, and to date, I have somewhere about 1,000 I have to sit down literally now that I'm retired and open up all the shoeboxes and go through the index cards to figure out who the heck did I usher into this world or help deliver into this world and how many are there. I'm, I'm estimating somewhere around a thousand because, you know, those Amish, they like to have babies. So my numbers are pretty large because of them. Um, And what I'm doing now is, is definitely different because, you know, when I retired, let me just talk about why I decided to retire because people ask me that question all the time why did you decide to retire to care? You're only, you know, in your, your forties, you know, you're young. And, and, and I'll say this, people have this scripted idea or this fictitious number that you must retire when you walk in with a walker, you must retire when you're, you're of age to retire. Who says that there's a, there's an age. Well, our society tells us that number one, the, the constructs that are pres- present in our society tell us that we must kill ourselves before we can retire. Well, I want to enjoy my life. And if you know anything about midwifery, midwifery is a hard work. It's a, a joyous and, a, and a, an empowering and, and wonderful work, but it is hard. It is hard mentally. It is hard physically. It is hard emotionally. And you're constantly giving, you're constantly pouring out into people. And I don't say this to say that I'm complaining, but I'm saying it to give the real actual truth to what midwifery is all about. And if you're doing midwifery right, you should feel exhausted, meaning that you should feel like someone pulled from you because you're giving. You need to tap in and be refilled, right? And that's the part that sometimes I find that midwives, including myself, the filling up part is where we lack, right? So as we're pouring out, we must be filled back up. So that means like self-care, that means with family time, that means with really, really car- carving out time for yourself. I didn't do that. And so my journey became harder, and my time became more invested, and I got weary. And I always promised myself, as I navigated through my career, being in all the environments that I was in, I often used to sit back and wonder, why is that midwife so mean? Why is she so short? She doesn't have to say it like that. And it dawned on me, that is not that she started out like that. It's not that she went into school wanting to be like that. She probably came into school with maybe some of the very similar things that I wanted to do and accomplish the compassion for people, the looking at the person in totality, the whole person, the wanting to walk alongside people and, and help people create a new legacy for their families and for their lives, the, the wanting to embrace a woman's voice and champion it and hold it up and, and amplify it. All of those things, most of us go into this kind of work for. But some, long, some way along, where along the line, we get disheartened. We get, we get infused with this other uh, uh, practice or this other way. Time is, is, is constrained on us and it causes us to make quicker decisions, decisions that are not thought out, decisions that are done in our own need, not based in the need of someone else where we have this person relentlessly watching our monitor strips. So we have this person who's just telling us what to do. Oh, get her done, get her delivered. We have this this fictitious idea, this construct, this culture called healthcare that then governs our decision-making, then governs how we interact with our patients, and we become something other than what we intended to be. And I knew that when I, I always thought that I would be protected from that because now I'm in home birth and home birth, it's peaceful. Home birth, you have decisions you can make. Home birth, a patient is fully in control. While all of that may be true and it is likely true, you still have to deal with not getting paid on time. You still have to deal with the constructs of the, the, the government and how the government controls licensure and how the government controls all of those things. And then you have to look at also when you transfer a client from the home, what does that look like? Do you have good relationships with these local hospitals and local physicians and local practitioners? You know, those are the things that 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 make it harder. Then, as you're a big wife, you're traveling, so now you got to hit the elements of of nature. You got to hit the pay, You know, the the um struggles of what happens when you travel. I did all of this work in New York City. I cannot tell you how many times my car got towed. I cannot tell you how many times my car got tickets. I think I pretty much support, supported New York City on a, a great large deal of my funds, just because I, or red light cameras or speeding cameras. You know, if, if I have someone who's, who's laboring and they're grunting and I'm not quite there yet because they weren't expecting to grunt this quick, this early on, I'm putting my foot to the metal. I cannot tell you how much money has gone out of the window for that kind of thing. So you, those things start to, you know, wear on you and then you have the inevitable being on call, right? And then you're not, you you, you have to now answer the call to the patient for the lack of maybe your personal life or your family. So those, when those things became burdens and they, they were no more, they were no longer light to carry, I, I promised myself that I would never become a, a midwife who's short patient that took out her feelings on another person. Because what that does, when you don't realize that you're in that position, when you don't realize that you're in that frame of mind, you inadvertently injure and harm. And I didn't wanna be that. And so I decided when I wasn't enjoying birth and it wasn't making me feel all light and fussy like it used to make me feel, that I was gonna say goodbye. Now, my journey didn't end and I didn't say goodbye and say peace out, bye free see you later i don't have anything else to do with you i knew that again in order for me to continue in that legacy of paying it forward as an individual right it was only going to do my heart justice to continue to do that so right now i am uh, i offer a mentoring service and i just started it i'm excited about it and it's a mentoring service for um individuals who are looking to in in you know be in the health professions Whether and and I can only speak to the, I can only mentor from the perspective of who I am. So I am a nurse, I'm a midwife, and I'm a lactation um, consultant. So I I will advise on those things and support on those things. So it's someone who's interested in those paths um, to healthcare. um, And then it could also be someone who's currently in school and looking for a little guidance. It could be somebody who is a new practitioner, graduated, and now they're they're trying to get their feet wet and they might have a difficult encounter with a colleague and not, not sure how to deal with it. Or they need help with applying to new jobs. Um, or someone um, who might be or have worked in the healthcare system and they're looking now to start a private practice. And then I also provide audits. And um, and helping people launch their their new practice. So that's sort of the the program, uh, the mentorship program that I've I've worked out. And it each each package has a different um, you know um, flair to it, or different you know information or things that I do based on the need of the person. But it's tailored to that person, of course. There are certain things that we definitely talk about, but it's according to that need. And you know, and 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 when I retired, I, it took me a year to make the decision to retire. But when I decided that I was done. I reflected on my past and I thought to myself, what would have helped me? What what would have made that journey a little bit longer? What would have made the journey a little bit lighter not as, as, you know, hard and unequivocally without doubt, the first thing that came to my mind was support. If I had had a senior midwife, if I had had a nurse take me under her wing, if I had someone telling me it's okay, encouraging me, showing me a different way to do things, um, challenging me to grow, challenging me to learn better communication skills, whatever. If I had had that person in my corner and if I didn't have to fight this fight by myself, I might have had a little bit more time to give, a little bit more of myself to give. And so that was when I decided someone has to be out here doing this and especially even more so for Black and Indigenous people of color and, and, which is the group that I identify with because we are really at the bottom um, in terms of midwifery um, midwifery um, in especially currently, and, and actually the years of midwifery has historically been a, a position that is held by uh, Caucasian women. And we've, we've not really had a seat at the table um, just like in many other aspects of our American society. While we during slavery, we were in groves in huge numbers because we were responsible for delivering our own people. Midwives back then did not get enough credit for the work that they were doing, the, the, the charisma in which they were able to care for their, 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 their patients, their families, and, and adjust labor and birth so that it fit their needs and not the needs of the slave master. Um, learn how to take the herbs of the of the land and heal the people and rescue the people they were wet nurses i mean these are this is the history we come from but we didn't know that history and so i had to learn it as i went on but it, there's no mentorship there's no support in that and and that lack of support was what i was thriving what i needed and that is could be why i struggled through my career as a midwife and so i vowed that i would continue to to push Midwives that look like me specifically, but all midwives, so that they understand that you know this is not a journey that they take alone. Same thing with nurses and other healthcare professionals. Not a journey that you take alone, but we need to build community around this because that was how healthcare was get driven and how healthcare used to be. The backbone of healthcare is community, and we've fallen away from that as we've become more medicalized and more uh, driven by money, by pharmaceutical companies, by, you know, medical equipment companies and, and capitalism.
0: Well, I can't even imagine a better person to do something like that. I think that's an amazing resource and you just have so much to, to give back, even though you're not catching babies, it, you're just still continuing your purpose. Um, yeah. How would somebody find this? This with you. How do they hook up with you to get this?
1: Yes. So right now, um, I am using just my social media platforms. I don't have uh, Facebook anymore, but I do have um, Instagram, and my Instagram is Sakina Midwifery. Um, So it's at Sakina Midwifery. It's S-A-K-I-N-A, and then the word Midwifery. Um, And so you can find the the information there. I also have a website. It's uh, SakinaMidwifery.com. Same spelling. Um, and so people can find me in, on that platform, um, for now, I'm gonna, I'm I'm sort of transitioning the website a little bit because I'm no longer a midwifery service. So I need to, you know, do some work in that, but it's been a very, very, um, uh, new transition right now. I'm also working with launching a new practice. So that practice has sort of taken over my clients and, um, we've worked really hard, um, at them. Uh, obtaining their own clients and things of that nature. And so I've been working with them a lot and that's been taking up a lot of time from actually redeveloping my website. But people can find me on those platforms um, and just inquire about about the program. Um, it's, it, you don't have to be in the same state that I'm living. We do a lot of our work virtually. Um, and so um, we'll meet and talk about the program that fits for you. Uh,
0: and we all know virtual is very important right now in the way things are moving forward. Um, And I do, because, you know, as you've talked about your background and how important it is that we really lift up aspiring midwives of color. um, People should check out your page because there's a lot of things on there that I was watching and listening to and reading that you had posted, but I was hoping that you could talk about a little bit about a video that you posted about a year ago. We talked about offline. Um, You, this is a paraphrase you you can, um, elaborate, but you talk about how you were at a conference, a white woman stood up, she cared or went on and on about all the things she was doing. Um, and you felt a little bit frustrated about that and kind of summary said, you know, we just need white birth workers, midwives to walk alongside us. I say us as in, um, people of color, you can't save us. We have to save ourselves, but please walk alongside us with these initiatives. Stop making it about you. Um, white people and instead watch your motives and ask how you can be a service to our community, to the black community. Yeah. Um, so elaborate, you know, talk a little bit about more what you, what point were you trying to get across to everybody? Yes. Well, I, I think,
1: I think that in that particular situation, the reason why I was, I left that, uh, that, that meeting completely taken aback by that encounter was that um, that, that In that meeting, it, it, there was a conversation about what are we doing to change the outcome for Black women um, in terms of the disparity that exists with the outcomes um, of birth for Black women and how we are three to four times likely to die um, related to childbirth. Um, even if we're educated or not, it does the factors don't change from based on education, based on where we live, based on income. It's the same across the board. Um, and even if we're more educated than uh, our counterparts, um, we're still at three to four times likely to die related to childbirth. And so we, that was the discussion. And What could we as a community do about it? And um, this this white woman stood up and she talked about all of these programs that she had put in place and about how she supports the black community. And she said it and she pointed to the the black woman that sat next to her and she said, so you know, we we hire Black midwives and she pointed to this Black woman as if she had her on the slavery block, you know, showing her off. Not once did she give the stage to the Black woman, not once did the Black woman open her mouth and speak about her own needs. She elaborated and spoke for her. And I think it was the action and it was the words that were coming out of her mouth that completely set me ablaze. And the reason is because, number one, the institutionalized Racism that exists in our culture, from the fact that we see this in the laws that were that have governed our 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 worlds, right, our our society, like Jim Crow, all the laws that had to do with segregation and things like that. It is fact that this society, this culture, this this country has has come from very very ugly beginnings. Now, when we are slum, when, when we are raped, we are marginalized. We are misused, abused, taken for granted. Our work is not paid for. We're, we're, um, our ideas are stolen. Our inventions are taken. Our children are taken. When those things are happening at the hands of someone who is white. and, And of course, Be it may, this was happening centuries ago, right? So it's not necessarily the white person right now that is doing that to us, but it's the ancestors, right? And so we still identify something in our DNA, something in our cells that identify with that pain when we see someone else that is of of Caucasian descent. Now, and it's it's flowered by the fact that there's privilege that goes along with it. So for 400 plus years, we have been set back. And now we had maybe 50, 60 years of, supposedly being able to be equal. It's like starting a race and the white person gets to run the race and start off out of the block strong. And we got to hold back and wait four minutes before we can start the race. We got to run faster, harder, put more work in just to get up to where you are. Or if the race was really a good race, maybe stop, stop running white person. Let us catch up to where you are and then begin the race again. So when, when we see that a white person wants to turn around and say, come on, Black person, let me help you win the race, it doesn't become about the Black person. It becomes about the white person in the help. Well, you have the saviorism, like, oh, we're gonna save you poor people because you poor people don't know anything. You poor people are so misfortuned. You poor people don't have this. You poor people don't have that. You poor people kill each other in the streets. You poor people are ghetto. You poor people are this, you poor people are that. When we get that message on a regular basis, when we turn on a TV, when our music is exploited, when our, our acting is exploited, when our children are exploited, when we're killed in the streets, when you get that message every damn day that you open up your door and walk out, when you go and buy a house and, and you get more, ins- your insurance for your house is more than the same house across the street that's owned by the white woman or white man. When you sell your house and your house is now listed 20% less than the same house across the street that's owned by the white woman, and you cannot tell me it's locality. You can't tell me it's, it's you know, because of that. No, it's because of the color of our skin right? These constructs are present. There is no way that we can fully accept, right? This saviorism because the saviorism doesn't allow us to be at the forefront. And that was what I was trying to describe to those people who want to rescue and want to help. Your help is in your understanding. Your help is in letting go of your, your, your biases, your un noticed, unrecognized biases, your help is in correcting the, the past in terms of helping your families understand, right? Those older Americans, your help is in walking alongside of us, not ever walking in front, not ever pushing, not ever grabbing and holding. No, walk with me. Ask me what I need. Don't assume what I need. And that was the thing. This particular organization wanted to assume what the Black person need. Sit down, close your mouth, empathize, understand, support, and that's it. It is when you take away our right to own, our right to to establish, our right to push ourselves forward, our right to be in charge of ourselves, our right to to all those things is when you now take your allyship and you squander it then your allyship becomes performative, right? And it no longer means anything. So that is why I said what I said.
0: Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Any um, thing that helps, you know, white people, white birth workers learn better ways to walk beside you is yes. always always good to hear. We We yes. need all of that. Um, and I hope that you can, I know you will, but continue to use that platform because that's how, just how I found you was mm-hmm. actually, that video was tagged or hashtagged or something. And mm-hmm. I was like, Oh, I, I really want this to speak to her and and share her story. <laughs> Thank so, you. Yeah. Um, so I cannot wait for everybody to, I'm going to scream this from the rooftops you have. I can't wait to share this story. <laughs> it's such a awesome, um, I, and you probably can't narrow this down, but do you have any last minute, if someone came to you and said, yeah, I want to be a midwife, any words of wisdom that you could pass yes, on? Definitely.
1: Um, I think my, my first point, and this has nothing to do with skin color at all, um, religion, creed or anything. If you want to be a midwife, you have to first be called. This is not um, a sensationalized pro- uh, profession. This is not uh, bells and whistles, glitz and glamour type of profession. It's hard work but it's rewarding work. It is it is work that if you don't get goosebumps, if you don't feel charged, if you don't feel like you have connected to a person on a level that is unexplanatory, that is midwifery. Midwifery is elevating voices when, without judgment. Midwifery is, is walking alongside families as they welcome a member into their family. But not only that, it is helping usher parents into parenthood. It is helping people do this without judgment, right? And so midwifery is something that you can't just decide out of the blue you want to be you have to feel it with every fiber with every cell in your body with everything with every gut that you everything you have midwifery has to be that call and so i would say if you're interested in midwifery first do your research right secondly talk to someone who is a midwife and i don't mean just a midwife who's just like, oh, I love it, right? Because you have to remember, there's some marketing that we do as midwives, right? As midwives, we wanna push the the furtherance of midwifery. And so we do a lot of marketing on social media platforms and things like that. And what you see on those platforms might not always be what really is. So check in with those midwives, ask them those hard questions, evaluate the situation before you get yourself into it. Why am I saying this? Because we cannot afford as a practice and as a healthcare system to have people out there injuring people because they are not fully called to this profession and understand really what they're getting into. When you get into midwifery, you have people's life, their mental space, their their emotions, their physical space, all of that. You're, 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 you're a part of that. And when you don't you, when you're not a good steward of that, you can injure people. You can traumatize people. And that is why our American healthcare system is constantly um, creating this trauma because we don't have that at the forefront. So I would really say Really look at your heart. Figure out what you want to do. Make sure that it, 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 it's something that it keeps nudging at you. If it keeps nudging at you and it comes back to you in your thoughts, you dream about it, you think about it, and that's all you can do, then you're meant to do it. But if it's like, oh, I think I might want to be a midwife. Oh, maybe, I, maybe, I'll be a, maybe I'll just be a nurse or maybe I'll just be a doctor. And you're like going back and forth with this thing. Pause for a moment and really, really reflect on if this is really what you want to do. Um, because at the end of the day, um, this is a powerful work. And it it cannot continue to be misused. And we need to use it and respect it because it is the life. It is the the foundation
0: of our human existence. Um, I think that's the best advice I have ever heard. You you (laughs) worded that, like, you took all the thoughts out of my head, probably every single midwife's head. Uh, We Uh need to put that all in quotes. (laughs) That was (laughs) seriously, I mean... I'm sure you put a lot of t- thought into saying it that way. Um that was perfect. I thank you. Yeah, every aspiring midwife needs to hear that piece of advice. Yes. So, yes. print that up, make it a pamphlet, <laughs> something. Well, you can send hand it, it me out. Me
1: and, I'll, and that's the thing, you know, when I when people tell me, "Oh my gosh, kid, you're giving me goosebumps. You need to re- I I you know, I, I don't preplan what I talk, what I say. I really don't. I've never been a person to write down what I want to say. I just speak real and truth from my heart. And it comes out however it comes out. And I make sure that I, you know, consider the people and the audience in which I'm speaking to, to make sure that I'm respectful of who they are. But that's just me. And I'm grateful. I can't, you know, I, I I, would like to say I get that from my dad. My dad was always a bold speaker of truth. And he did it with love. And so I learned that from him. And even though I had a really, really tough journey with him as his daughter, he gave me that. And I'm forever grateful for it because... I cannot say that I planned this conversation. I, I looked at, our, at the questions that you sent me and I just briefly looked through and I'm like, eh, I've said this before, we'll be all right. You know, I, I didn't plan that that end, but I hope that it is inspiring for some um, that hear it. And and maybe you'll send me the recording and I can figure out what I said to, re, to reproduce it. But I, if you ask me right now, what did you say, Takia? I wouldn't be able to re-
0: reproduce it right now
1: because <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs>
0: It just well falls. it is forever <laughs> recorded now so for the whole Thank everybody you. to hear <laughs> yes and I will definitely send it to you because it is definitely worth writing down and um like I said that's why I share these stories is just to for people to hear all these perspectives all these journeys right mm-hmm. your every midwife journey is unique um mm-hmm. you know yours had lots of hurdles some don't have as many <laughs> but we all have have you know, a unique story to share. And I mm-hmm. just know that people are going to hear yours and really, really find inspiration and guidance and um, maybe even dissuade them. And maybe that is what they needed, you know? Yes.
1: Yes. True.
0: So, sometimes that's what you need. Like you said, you really, you have to be called. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so thank you like a million. Thank yous for coming on thank here you. And, thank you. and allowing me to share your story. I, I feel very privileged for you letting me do that.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate that you are doing this, honestly, because I don't I don't know of any other platform where where midwives can share their story, and I think it's a story that needs to be heard because it's been a voice. Midwifery's voice has been squandered and quieted and quenched for years. And um, when we when our voice was elevated again, we had to go to bed with medicine in order for it to be elevated. You know, we had to we had to concede in order to be heard. And I think that we need to hear that in the voice of midwives who are journeying through this career so that we can understand that this is a this is a profession that is unique and that belongs to us and has belonged to us for centuries. And we need to take it back and we need to uphold it and support it. And people need to know who we are. No, we are not the doula, we are the midwife. Let me tell you about what a midwife is and what a midwife does. So I am grateful that you have this platform and I will definitely be pushing um, your platform more because new, it's new to me as well.
0: Well, thank you. And, it, you know, just like you, I'm not in this for glory. I, right. I get paid a whole zero dollars. Um, so <laughs> it's just to share our stories for exactly yeah. what you said. Like yeah. we, we haven't been heard and we haven't, our birth story, you know, mm-hmm. quote unquote mm-hmm. was not, mm-hmm. has not been told. So, right. um, so thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you would like to interview or know someone who does or encourage someone who has a great story or viewpoint to share, have them reach out to me. Easy to find. I'm in one place now. podcast at gmail.com. The email address is in the show notes and on the podcast page. But again, podcast at gmail.com. I can't wait to hear from you and share your story.